You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 134. Subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. And uh, computer us at codingblocks.net and find show notes, example discussion, and a whole lot more. And feedback and questions can be sent to our email address, comments at codingblocks.net. You can follow us on Twitter at codingblocks or head to www.codingblocks.net and find all our social links there at the top of the page. And with that, I'm Alan Underwood. I'm Joe Zach. And I'm Michael Outlaw. Man, I just had a moment moment of panic. I looked down and was like, did I hit record? I did, so we're good. We're good. Oh, I thought your moment of panic was going to be saying too many W's. Yeah, it might have been that too. (laughs) But first, this episode is sponsored by the University of California Irvine Division of Continuing Education. One of the top 50 nationally ranked universities, UCI offers over 80 certificates and specialized programs designed for working professionals. And Datadog, the cloud-scale monitoring and analytics platform for end-to-end visibility into the performance of your entire containerized environment. And today we're continuing to talk about uh, Google engineering practices, uh, specifically related to code reviews. But first, a little bit of news. Yep, uh, we don't have a ton this time, but for, we do want to say thank you to Stitcher. Hey, we had some iTunes ones also, didn't we? Or no, no, okay, just Stitcher. All right, so we have Gene. Oh man, I'm not sure on this one. Guillami, Mistelli, and Gitterskow. So thank you both of you for leaving reviews. And I think both of those actually mentioned our Slack channel as one of the things that they truly love about Coding Blocks. And we mention it every time. If you haven't joined the Coding Blocks Slack, you're really missing out. Truly a great group of people there. And I say group lightly. It's like a, a, a small country worth of people in that Slack channel. So definitely go up there, man. There's some there's some great conversations to go on. And I will be back there soon, hopefully. I got to say, man, that was an impressive – even if it was wrong, the way you pronounced that name, it, it was impressively like – it sounds like they could probably be right. I think it's Guillaume, I think is what it is. But, yeah, we'll, I we'll find out. I would have never even come close to anything like that. You want to give it a shot? Point. You want to give it a shot? Uh, <laughs> no. <laughs> don't, don't do it to him. Don't do it to him. Uh, okay. I was trying to give you a compliment, man. Why you got to like make this a jab at me? Thanks. Uh, it's not a jab. It's just always more fun. Right? Oh, yeah. Put so, me on the spot. How about you say the name? And I'm like, oh, thanks. That's not what I was looking for. I was trying to give you a compliment. I won't ever do it again, though. I learned my lesson. <laughs> Uh, awesome. So as Joe said, this, we're going to get back into the Google engineering. I think this kind of wraps it up this episode right here. So, um, we're going back into code reviews. And the first thing that we want to talk about is navigating the change list in a code review. And it is change list, right? Yeah. That's what they, that's what Google refers to it as. Which we've always in the, in, in the past called PRs, right? Pull request because we use the GitHub terminology. So, um, not GitHub, but Git. Get get terminology, yes. So first, does the change make, make sense and does the change list have a good description? So we've talked about so – I feel like some of this stuff is sort of rinse and repeat in other sections that we've talked about, but they go into a little bit more detail here. But one of the things they say is if it doesn't make sense, you need to immediately respond with why. And – you should do that and you should tell them what they should have done. But there's some keys here. 
be nice when you reply, right? Like, yo, this is wrong, torched. <laughs> We're not touching it. You don't do that. You say, hey, this looks really good, but hey, you know, we are actually deprecating this part of the code base, right? Like maybe if that's what you're doing, give them the reason why. And then also follow up with, hey, maybe what you could do is move this over here. Or, you know, maybe I need you to change this here to, to make it more in line. Yeah, so, we actually have a whole separate framework for logging uh, that is not part of our authentication library. And so your logging framework belongs over here. Right. It, it needs to be a dependency injected, right? Let's not bring that in here or something. So, yeah, there, there's... But the key is you need to respond quickly so that the developer can make those changes um, for a number of reasons. Um, but it, we'll get into those here in a minute. Now, let's be honest. How many times have you ever done this? <laughs> Especially the be courteous part. <laughs> oh, the courteous, I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I try and be nice sometimes. The part, the thing that I guess is frustrating and I think you guys can attest to this. If you haven't established some good boundaries in your code base, then it's hard to make anybody be the person that dies on that hill. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, that's kind of what I was thinking because like having, you know, not having worked for Google where they, where they have these published, uh, you know, here, here's our published standards on how to review, you know, handle your code review. Right. Uh, I guess in, in in my career, like, you know, because there wasn't these published standards, then it was kind of like, okay, you know, I said that it, this is the way it should be and you just got to take my word for it. Whereas at least in this Google uh, s- setup, then they're like, no, 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 we actually have it documented. Like this is the process. We You have to follow this. And if it doesn't, then it doesn't fit in versus, you know, in my situation, people are like, I don't care that that's how you want it. <laughs> well, one of the things that comes to mind for me is when people like it, we talked about it before, like we've, we've all worked on projects where those projects sort of become the dumping ground, right? Like there's 5,000 utilities in it. There's everything under the sun just lands in there. Yeah. The utilities and, project. Yeah. And it's really hard when you want to draw that line in the sand and be like, no, <laughs> we're done with this. Right. So, so, you know, outlaw puts in a pull request. I'm like, no, dude, this doesn't go in here. <laughs> He's like, what do you mean? It doesn't go in here. But, but no, I mean, I guess, you know, uh, what I'm saying is there, there might be, if you have a good separated, a nice clean architecture, right. Where certain components live in certain places, it's a whole lot easier when somebody puts in a pull request or a change list that, or, you know, that, that sort of bucks what should be in there. And you could call that out as opposed to if you have this huge monolithic project that has everything in it, that it, what are you going to tell somebody move the folder? Right? Like, so that could be hard. Um, but here's, here's one thing that was interesting. If you do shoot it down and I found this really curious because I never really thought about it. If you find that people are putting in change lists to your code base, and and you're finding yourself multiple times saying, no, this doesn't go here. No, this doesn't belong here. No, this is the wrong pattern. Then you should probably set up like a readme, which I think Joey even said he's a fan of having readmes in every directory. And I'm not opposed to that. Like set that up so that people can see before they go do something that, hey, these these are the standard guidelines for what should go in here. And this is what will get a PR approved or not. Right. Well, well just to like, Give some clarification there, though, because like if you have a very small project, 
And you're like, why would you have a readme in every directory? Yeah, you're probably right. In that scenario, it doesn't fit. Right. But in the case of a mono repo where you have like a, a team with a big code base and everything is in that same repo and it's broken apart by like, you know, the directory structure, then you might want to have like a repo, uh, readme at the repo's root level to describe like the overall, like this belongs here and that belongs there. And then inside of each of one of those things, be like, okay, here's what's, you know, uh, you know, to describe like, Hey, here's the web app and this is how the web app version works. And, you know, Hey, here's the database and how the database works, you know? So you might have r- different readmes for those different, uh, inside of those different folders because those different folders represent different functional pieces. And I know you're going to argue with about like, well, why would that all be in the same thing? Trust me, mono repo. It's, it happens. It's kind of a thing. <laughs> <laughs> and by doing that, really what you're doing is you're saving a developer a lot of time and frustration. And not only that, you're probably saving yourself some time and frustration too. As one of the reviewers, if people know that they shouldn't be putting this type of thing over here and instead it should go over there, then you're not going to get tapped on the shoulder a bunch to do reviews that don't make sense for your area of the code. So I, I like that. I, I wouldn't have thought about it, but I thought that worked out well. Yeah. Um, the next thing that they bring up here is you need to examine the main parts of the change list. And this one's kind of interesting too. I don't think I'd ever thought about this, but I think it is actually going to change how I do code reviews is look at the file with the most changes first. Never thought about this because they're usually like, typical. yeah, I think in Git, the way that the PRs come in is it's almost always just what you said, right? Like directory alphabetical and then the file alphabetical under it. But if you could look it like even if you have to skim through the files to see which one has the most changes, like there might even be a number next to the file that says how many lines have changed in it. Click on that thing. That way you might get an idea of what the overall change is doing. And then chances are the smaller files that are being changed or the, the smallest number of changes, those are probably just tertiary to whatever that main file is doing, right? So yeah, that can that can help. I think this is gonna be a big part of like it, 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 your, your tooling though, right? Yes. Like for us, for example, like we use uh, Azure DevOps on a daily basis. And in Azure DevOps, when you submit that pull request and you're reviewing it, you see all the files in alphabetical order, right? You know, directories and then files in alphabetical order. So you don't really like see hey, this file had 90% of the changes in it or, you know, or even, you know, it had 30 changed lines versus this other file only had one. You don't, that's not apparent to you. It makes me wonder what tools they're using that are different, right? Like, um, I think Morali had, had, you know, told us about the internal things that they do at Google. I'm curious if if they've got some other sort of change, change list system that, that surfaces those things better, you know? Yeah, you know, you just remind me. Um, so I got my butt kicked hard on a, a leak code problem last month, and uh, it was doing a diff. And so I ended up going down a rabbit hole, re- like reading about how Git does diffs and like just common diffing algorithms. Uh, it turns out there's a, an amazing algorithm that works really well for diffing that like Git uses by default. Turns out it has a couple different options, but uh, it's pretty dense. Um, but I um, grabbed a link to a really cool article that I read specifically about how Git does it. And they looked at this, uh, the main algorithm, Myers diff algorithm, which is uh, like the most the common way that diffing programs do their diffs. And it tells you like the minimum changes you need to make 
to make one thing equal another. Uh, it's really smart. It's really cool. Uh, definitely not intuitive. Um, and it's a dense read, but if that's something you're interested in, definitely check it out. And this guy, I actually wrote a book and this is a, like a little segment of that book too, that, uh, if you like really want to know how Git works at a very deep level, this is a good read. Yeah. This is not, um, leisurely reading here. I just scrolled the page and I think my eyes melted. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. The, um, so, uh, just, just cause I can't resist. What it does is it basically generates kind of a graph between the two and it goes through. And so if you've got, uh, diffs, um, if you imagine a matrix, oh, here we go. Imagine, imagine a graph, but, uh, you generate a matrix and where things are in common, you kind of draw a line. So it's, it's kind of like reminds me of like a board game, like shoots and ladders or, uh, yeah, shoots and ladders is the one mm-hmm. where you can kind of go through and there's like some places if you roll the right dice, you can kind of take a shoot and shoot you to the next like level. Okay. So you jump the line a bit. And so basically that's kind of how it works. You generate this graph and then you go through and you find the minimum uh, distance from point A to point B on this graph. And you can kind of take these, um, these shoots to uh, jump the line and that's places where the files are the same. And so the result is that you get the minimum number of things that need to change and you can tell the difference between deletes, inserts and replacements. I mean, it's an amazing algorithm. Uh, but it, I mean, prepare to spend a few hours reading about. <laughs> you know, generating graphs. Yeah. This is one of those black holes that you fall down. So don't save that leak code problem for 11 PM. <laughs> no, you know what they, you know what they did? You know what they did? <laughs> What'd they do, Joe? What'd they, What'd they do? They so, so I did May, you know, and then I did June. I did every day. I did the leak code problem challenge contest. Wait, we're uh, only like day. four days into June. Oh, oh, uh, wait, sorry. I did April and then I did May. And, uh, you know, April has some definite hard spots. May was mostly better. There was one spot where I did terrible. And then the last day uh, of May was terrible. It was this diff one. It was the first hard problem. By the way, lead code hard is insane. Lead code medium is hard. But anyway, so it was like the last day of April, it was an easy problem. It was like, a, hey, you know, thanks for playing. Like, here's the easy one. Oh, my God. May. Oh, <laughs> punch in the gut. So I finally ended up cheating. But I, in the meantime, I did read a lot about uh, diff algorithms. Uh, that's awesome. But here's the thing. It's fine to cheat when you're doing things like that because you still learn something, right? So Yeah. I, I mean, I spent two hours on it still. So it was like – and streaming it. <laughs> so I streamed myself cheating uh, in a contest. Awesome. That's excellent. Maybe illegal. Who knows? Oh, man. So getting back to this change list thing now uh, – one of the things that they say is if the CL is actually too big for you to understand by just looking at it, then there's a couple of options, right? One is ask the developer to point you at sort of what you need to be looking for. Uh, we all know that if you're just looking at these code changes and in, in, in partial lines or whatever, it, it could be nearly impossible to figure these things out. So that's one. The other one that I found really interesting, I'm curious if you guys have ever done this. Before you go to that one, I just want to point out that other one, though, we've actually talked about that, where we talked about like the buddy review system, where, you know, you might have, you pair up with them, just like, hey, walk me through your change list here, point me around what's what and everything to make it easy for me to figure out, you know, to to even try to review this thing. Now, now go on to this one, because we're going to have a discussion here. Yeah, I'm I'm really curious on, on... whether or not you guys have ever done this, you can ask the person, the developer, to split that change list into multiple change lists to make it smaller and easier for you to digest in the multiple change list. No, don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Why not? 
Well, because it's separate, it's hard to separate those changes. It's not like you can just easily make changes in one folder without changing another. And like, what if one gets merged and the other doesn't? And just it's asking someone to go back on something that was really hard and finicky and probably involved a lot of replacements and kind of dangerous, like high wire walking. And you're saying, can you, can you like do this in like eight different ways? And you're like, no, no. Okay. I'm going to find a new reviewer. That's all I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I like how you think. So, so here's the thing in, in a utopian world, right? Then yeah, sure. We would, uh, you know, all, all pull requests would be small and they'd be easy to, to reason about. I, I get it. I get it. And, and we should definitely strive towards that more often than not. But once you've already put together a pull request and if it happened to turn out to be, you know, a beast with, you know, uh, you know, uh, whatever that means to you, if it's 10 files or a hundred files or a thousand files, you know, you can't always split that apart into multiple. So yeah, sure. You can ask me. That doesn't mean that it necessarily can, because what does it mean to like make, here's three small pull requests. Neither of the, n- none of them will compile on their own, you know, individually until they're all in. And so you worse, you don't want those things to get merged in individually in, cause now in your git log, you have three separate things that like, or, you know, or, or until you get that that last that third one, you might have like two commits in there that aren't going to work. Which, from a Git bisect point of view, you know how I feel about that. So, you know, you you, you would want those things to all go in as one thing into uh, you know whatever branch you're merging into. So, I, you can ask, but that doesn't mean you're going to get it. Be prepared for disappointment because it's going to be a big part of your life. <laughs> I, I agree with that. I think the only time, and I may have asked somebody to do this one time, was when a bunch of style changes got mixed in with actual real changes, and I was yeah. like, I can't, I can't even see this. In the so, case of refactoring, like that, we kind of covered that once before. The fine right. in the refactoring effort, like put that in. But I'm talking about specifically real with like, changes. You've made you've made some big changes, and now all of the other changes that are following along are just like. Uh, ancillary. Well, I can't say that word. Uh, you know, side effects of whatever the big change is. You know, just yep. because I can't say English doesn't mean that you can't. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, you know, so so you know, you, you that whole thing. It's not fair to like try to ask me to split up. Like, hey, I want thirty files that you know into a into its own pull request just to make it easier to read. And and if you like, hopefully you have uh some validation, you know, rules on your, your pull requests so that, you know, before a pull request, like one of the things that has to happen before a pull request can even be merged in is the fact that it has, uh, that it builds successfully and passes the test. Right. And so that's my point is like, you know, if you were to do this, it might, you might have three independent, smaller pull requests that none of them compile. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I don't think it's necessarily something that would happen all that often. It doesn't seem like it would be. So here's the next thing that they say, and and this one's interesting too. They basically say if you see a major problem with the change list that comes in, you need to send feedback immediately. Mm. And and okay, I agree. This th- they have some really legit reasons for it. So the first major one is that if a developer just put in a, a a change set that's going to be pretty big and fairly gnarly and you see a big problem with it, chances are they're moving on to their next task that might build off that one. Right. 
And so if you're getting ready to give them a response that says, we can't do this, hit the brakes, you want to do that early enough so, so that that developer doesn't then go on and waste a lot of time on the next thing that they're then going to have to redo. So here's my thoughts on this. Uh, again, you know, because of Azure DevOps, for example, as an example, uh, you know, when you're going through that and you're like reviewing like a, a specific file, right. And you can like put a comment in line with what you're reviewing, right. That, that feedback gets immediately sent back to the, the author of the pull request. Right. So, so you are immediately responding back. Now where the rub though, is that this comes back to the one that we talked about earlier, where you want to review the, the biggest change first, you know, you want to, you want to review the meat of what the actual change was first so that if there is this big, uh, showstopper problem, you know, that you can see it first, which in the case of like the Azure DevOps, you're not going to get to it eventually. You know, it, if that file happened to start with a Z and you know, the other 300 files were alphabetically before it, you're not going to see the real meat of the change until you get to the end. Right. The the next thing that they said, and this also makes sense, this kind of goes back to the previous one a little bit, is all of us have deadlines, right? Like, it's not like you just get to work on things until you finally finish it and Eureka, you're good, right? We've always talked about the fact that developers, if left to their own will, would just refactor themselves into the perfect yeah. state of code at the end of, you know, some millennium. But here's the thing, knowing that we all have deadlines... If you're not getting back to them in some sort of timely fashion, right? Like somebody puts in a pull request or a change list on Monday and you're not looking at it till Friday and this stuff has to go out Friday, you've now killed their ability to go in and do things in a timely manner, right? So it's really just respecting the time of the person who put the effort in in the first place to put in that change list. If you want me to change three things, but I still got the branch up, the editor's open, it's on the file, no problem. If you come back a week later, it's like, oh, come on. Oh. Right. And it seriously can be that bad, right? Like if you're in the middle of a big, some big change set that you're working on, sure, you could get stashed that, but, or, or, you know, whatever your source control system is. But man, that context switching can be really tough. It yeah. can be really hard. You know, this made me think that, um, even if your tooling doesn't show you the file that like where maybe the bulk of the changes were that like, you know, Hey, there's a, there's a thousand files that changed, but you know, they changed because of these, you know, 90% of them changed because of these five files. Right. So these are the five you should look at first. It made me think, you know, we should all probably take better advantage of pull request templates so that uh, we yeah. could like put it in as a template, like, Hey, as the author of the pull request, you need to call out, what are the things, what are the, you know, the number of files that I should look at first, which, which, which are those files are the ones I should go after first during this code review? I like that. Yeah. Which I think, I, I mean, you do that. I, I know I've done that several times, I, even though. It's been a while since I feel like I've committed any code anywhere, but um, yeah, I, I think if you know that you've got a particularly nasty one, especially if you're so using something like uh, Visual Studio Online to where they don't put it up in your face, that's a really good thing for the developer to help the, the reviewer out. So um, 
Oh, and then, so here's another thing they say that I thought was really good also. And I think subconsciously I do this a lot of times, but it's nice to hear it because it'll make you think about this. If you look at the change list in the appropriate order, the, the, the sequence that makes sense. And a lot of times that might mean look at the unit test first because the unit test typically are testing what the the developer expects this thing to do. And you might be able to look at that and get a really quick understanding of what this change request is supposed to be doing. Right. And then, like we said, after you go to the bigger file, go to the files that sort of make sense when you're looking at that bigger change set, then you can look at the files that look like they should be associated with it. And they said, not only will that help you understand it better, but you'll probably get through the change list much quicker, which I don't know about you guys, but change looking at at, at um, change requests can take a lot of time. Yeah, not fun. Yeah, not not usually. I mean, so yeah, that was all good stuff. Yep. Um, one thing they mentioned here too was um, the speed of uh, code reviews. We've kind of mentioned that uh, a little bit, and I think we hit on this before. But basically, the idea here is that the velocity of the team is more important than the individual. So even though it takes time to do a pull request because code is so much more often read than written, you're better off to, to make sure it goes in good the first time. And it's worth taking people away from their work with some caveats. So the idea here is that if someone is slacking on doing an individual review, then maybe they're getting more work done, but they're slowing things down for the team. Because as you know, when stuff kind of sits out there in pending status, people get irritated, first of all. <laughs> but uh, stages start stacking up and people start saying, well, I'm waiting for this before I do that. You're creating dependencies and things get uh, kind of deadlocked. But uh, also, you know, if you can uh, – basically just find a good break point, you know, in your day. Like if you know, you've got some codes coming, um, some code reviews coming up, they recommend kind of just doing that. You know, like if you're, if you got a meeting, do it after the meeting or do it before the meeting. Cause you know, you're not getting much done before that. And, um, I mean, that's a good do, point. Is it like, if you, if you're, if you've already taken yourself, if you've already context switched for the point of view of like, you know, uh, you were in a meeting and so now you're free or, you know, you just got back from lunch. Those are great opportunities to be like, okay, before I dive back into like trying to solve some problem, you know, let me just take a moment, review this, this pull request and then go on. Yeah. Don't drop what you're doing, but they do say uh, roughly one business day is the max that you should try to let these things go because of all the reasons we mentioned. I will um, say the thing that you have up above it there. If if there's a long delay and the, it encourages rubber stamping, that's huge. Yeah. That's yep. huge. Yeah, it's another bad thing. It's like as time goes on, like you feel guilty going back and asking someone for you know those three changes that I mentioned earlier. And so, uh, you know, if it's six days later, you might you know feel worse about asking them to make those changes, and they're going to certainly feel worse about doing it. Uh, so the the quicker you are to fix, the easier that fix is going to be. And uh, like uh, like you mentioned, uh, looking at the files in a meaningful order uh, can help. Uh, so either looking at which ones have changed the most or maybe if there's some sort of natural organization to kind of start at the top, it's a good way of going. And I also just wanted to kind of emphasize that uh, I'm talking about response times here. So when we talk about the speed of the code review here, I'm specifically talking about uh, the length of the total time of back and forth between like reviewer and coder, yeah. not like how many minutes you spend reading the code. Right. So from the moment I've asked for you to review the code, how long until you actually respond back with any feedback at all, regardless of what it is. Yep. So what's that latency? What's that time that pull request is sitting idle? 
That's the number to try and get down within reason. Uh, and they basically say, when's it okay to LGTM? Basically, you know, rubber stamp it. And uh, they gave two specific reasons. And I was kind of, uh, I don't know. I, I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, one, they say when the reviewer trusts the dev to address all the issues. In order, uh, in other words, they're just kind of saying like, okay, there are three or four comments on this pull request. I'm going to go ahead and LGTM it right now, assuming that you're going to make these changes. Uh, and I don't know, that felt a little weird. I mean, I, I get I get saying that and kind of being like, yeah, okay, you're going to change this name to that name and then we're good. I get saying that, but uh, I guess I'm so used to kind of like once that approval goes through, it like actually goes on and merges. So I guess it kind of depends on your process, but I didn't love that. I don't know, it just kind of felt weird. Well, okay, so just to be clear, because I don't know that we've ever defined LGTM, but uh, that was Google's abbreviation for looks good to me. Uh, so, you know, again, in typical compaction uh, format, uh, you know, their middle out compression is amazing. And so, yeah. uh, you know, they abbreviate everything. Um, but I mean, like, again, if we were to compare this back to the Azure DevOps world, right? Like, uh, you can approve with suggestions. So, like, I ri- I've written some changes, but I can still go ahead and, like, mark it as approved with the suggestions. With the knit. But that's that's different than just sort of the looks good to me looks sort of like a rubber stamp type thing is what they're saying. I don't think it's rubber stamp. It's definitely not rubber stamp. But yeah, it's not hitting the approve button. But it's like saying like pass. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I guess what they're saying is if it's super minor stuff, then you don't. I don't know. Yeah, it's okay to let it go through. Well, that was actually the next one. Is that the changes are minor? Yeah, it's just not worth holding things up. And so you can say, hey, go, let's go ahead and push this through, but um, you're going to fix this stuff af- afterwards. And they did make a big point to say, uh, you know, t- sometimes it's tempting to say, like, okay, let's push this through, but then write another ticket and go clean it up afterwards. Because, like, I know you're trying to get this out from the demo. And they basically say, like, yeah, that's great in theory, but uh, as time passes, you're less likely to return to that. And so, so often that ends up just never happening. So don't do that. Wink, wink, Which we wink. all know to be true here. All three yeah. of us know oh, yeah. that to be true. Oh, we're just going to shove this in so that we can put it out there and we'll, we'll fix it next week, year, yep. decade. <laughs> How many times have you seen in to-dos or temps and stuff in comments? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember there used to be, um, I don't think it was like built into Visual Studio. I think it was like a, a resharper bit where it would like find the to-dos so you could actually have a pain, a separate pane in Visual Studio that was specifically all of the to-dos. And it would, yeah. it had already like found them all in your code based on, you know, just searching for the string. <laughs> they ended That's up cool. being like the warnings. You just ignored them because the list got so long that you're like, eh. <laughs> whatever. Yep. Right. This episode is sponsored by the University of California, Irvine Division of Continuing Education. UCI is no stranger to online education, having offered online courses to students around the world for almost 20 years. There's never been a better time to get a quality and convenient online education than right now. Learn from anywhere, anytime by choosing a schedule that fits your needs. And are you looking to get a job in data science? With UCI certificates in data science, predictive analytics, and machine learning, students gain the necessary skills to land their data science dream jobs. If you're looking to become competitive in the global marketplace, advance your career, or start a new one, UCI has the resources to support you on your new path. 
Enrollment is now open for the summer quarter with courses beginning as early as June 22nd. And if you're concerned about the cost, don't be. UCI has scholarship options for those that qualify. So learn more by visiting ce.uci.edu. That was ce.uci.edu slash coding blocks to learn more and reserve your seat. One more time, that was ce.uci.edu slash coding blocks and reserve your seat today. All right. Hey, so Joe here and, um, you know, I've asked nicely. So uh, I'm going to try and switch things up a little bit and tell you that just directly we need reviews. We need them bad. We uh, are hooked. You guys have been too good to us and we just need more. And so, um, you know, done being nice about it. I'm just going to say, you know, if you don't leave us uh, at least uh, 17 reviews for next episode, <laughs> I'm going to I'm gonna sing a song about it on the next episode. And well, uh, yeah. Hold this on. is with this tattoo, right? <laughs> now, now you're just encouraging people to not leave a review so they can hear you sing. Wait, crap. Uh, I wait, I said it other way. If if we get 17 reviews, I will sing a song about well, I like reviews. It. I like there it. Go. That's there you yes. go. That's the way to do it. Yes. yes. Sorry. We get more reviews with honey than uh, whatever the other thing was. Flies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so wait, are we doing Ice Ice Baby? What's the song going to be? Oh yeah, you'll see. Yeah, you, okay. you gotta you gotta leave a review if you want to hear the song. All right. All right. Oh man. I, oh, if there was ever. A wish, please hit the 17 reviews because I really want to hear. <laughs> I really want to make this happen. Uh, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Let me hear a song. Outlaw and I will make 10 fake accounts and we're going to make this happen. <laughs> I'll accept it. Uh, I'll, okay. I'll, well, um, until next episode, right now, my favorite portion of the show is coming up. But next episode, it's definitely going to be listening to Joe's singing. But for now, survey says. <clears throat> All right. So uh, a few episodes back, we asked, what tools are you using to ease work from home? And this was a multiple choice. And so your choices were RDP, VPN, Citrix, Zoom, Skype, Slack, WebEx, Hangouts, Team, Discord, Pigeon, Jitsi, Messages, FaceTime, Join.me, and go to my PC. So uh, let's let Alan go first and tell me which one you think would be the most picked choice in percent. Man, this this one's going to be... This one's going to be tough. I think I think this whole work from home thing has got people needing to talk to each other a lot more face to face. So I'm going to go with one of those. Okay. And I'm torn because <laughs> Zoom kind of got slapped around a little bit. Um, I, I would say it's probably between Zoom and Teams would be my guess. Okay. But I, I'll go with Zoom and and. I don't know how this is going to pan out. We'll say that forty uh, percent of people are using Zoom. Okay, I like your okay. thought process there. All right. Well, uh, I think that we use the word ease, uh, so I think I'm going to go with Zoom and 100. <laughs> percent Everybody, everybody, everybody. First time ever this ever happened. <laughs> okay. 
Okay. He, he is the math wizard. He <laughs> is. You can't you can't fight him on that. Um all right. So Alan with Zoom at 40% of the vote and Joe with Zoom at 100% of the vote. <laughs> Joe wins. You're both wrong. Oh. What was the t- was yep. it Skype? Slack? Skype. No. Hangouts. No, but I, I like all these second guesses that I'm getting. Like, you know, I can see where your insecurities lie because you're like, oh, that was the one I was going to pick next. I, I truly don't know now. What was yeah. it? Okay. So so look at this list, man. This is this is mixed, right? Because we were talking about like just easing work from home. Mm-hmm. Are we going to say RDP? VPN. By a long shot. Oh my gosh. Good. Oh, How did man. you not miss the most generic of all of them? You had to tunnel into your network. Yep. So oh, man. that was surprisingly, that was not a hundred percent of the vote. Though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it really should have been. So um, I guess we need to have a talk with some of these people that didn't pick VPN. <laughs> they, they just got their, their work computer sitting on a public IP somewhere. <laughs> I guess, man, because it was only 67% of the vote. Wow, I but, didn't even think about VPN. Yeah, that was definitely. But I mean, I, I did like where your logic was going with with the Zoom. I mean, that you know, it made a lot of sense. Uh, but Teams was number two. Okay. Oh wow! Yeah, which isn't surprising. A lot of companies use Microsoft tools for Office, yep. Excel, all that. It comes with it, right? Yeah. And, and if you've never used Teams and you're in an office environment where you have to share documents and stuff, they do a really good job integrating that stuff. Yeah. So. Yeah. So so Teams, it was like almost uh, 58% of the vote. Wow. We'll call it. Wow. Yeah. Again, this was multiple choice. So this is why you could have like these percentages the way they were. Uh, Zoom was the number three, though. Okay. Uh, at, at 36%. So. Even though it got beat down pretty hardcore during the beginning of this whole thing, but you know, mm-hmm. I mean, to Zoom's credit, I mean they 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 got the feedback and they immediately went to work solving the problems. Right? Oh, they you stepped know. up their game. Though. So, I mean, it only ended up making their product better in the end. But yeah, they did take a lot of um, bad bad press, you know, for it. But um, interestingly, Slack was number four at 28%. And I got to tell you, that's got to be much higher. So if you're not already a part of our Slack community, you need to join. You can go to codingblocks.net slash Slack, or you can find out information on how to become a part of that if you're not. Because really that number, we need to make that number higher. I agree. The fact that you've got Giphy integration is is enough to be on (laughs) Slack. That's like the reason to be on Slack. So, oh man, they just got bought by Facebook. Did they? Yeah. yeah. 400 yeah. mil. When did I miss that? I'm not even sure. Know. There's like, a lot of news lately. Why? Like I always questioned, Hey, what is their, like I get their value. I, I like the service. It's fun. It makes using the internet fun, right? Because you could just throw in a GIF every now and then, but you ever wonder like, wow, how do they make money? Like, wh- how does this work? Dude, it's a tracking got, pixel. <laughs> yeah, and they've got so much data. You're talking about Slack? Think oh, about Giphy. this. Oh, Giphy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I yeah Giphy. Like, They're how basically are they one big money? tracking pixel. <laughs> you might be right. <laughs> I mean, you really think that's it? Like, they just see that their ship it 
uh, GIF gets added to our Slack, and that matters. Uh, yeah. Dude, that one's so good. You know, another one of my favorite all-time GIFs is the the rejection one, where the guy opens up the door coming into an office in like a robot suit. And somebody shoots a basketball, and he just <laughs> smashes yeah. it down. <laughs> Uh, that's funny. The, the company says that there are no tracking pixels, cookies, or others, uh, other embedded user tracking information in their Giphy GIFs. But, I mean, they're literally a tracking – like the reason you use the tracking pixels is because it's an image that's requested from a server so you can know more information about who requested the information. Like, You know, the same thing works for a, a GIF. It's one big tracking pixel. Dude, so yeah. check it out. How Giphy makes money. Is this the Investopedia? Yeah, Investopedia. (laughs) I I had to do it. Giphy hasn't generated any revenue to this point. It does not charge any money for the use of its apps. It's currently operating off the $20 million venture capital money it raised over the last two years. It has been busy lining up licensing deals with media producers and music companies to become a major content distribution company. So they have plans. Yeah. I got plans. I got we could sell plans. I didn't know we could sell plans. <laughs> it reminds me of Jeff Foxworthy when the people come to it like, oh, hey, yeah. we, need, we need we need you to pay off your car. Like, They're going to repo you know, his you car. Know, yeah, you're going to repo his car. Hey, we need the money. He was like, if, I ain't got any if you money. can't, yeah, I ain't got no money. Well, I mean, can you write us a check? He's like, oh, oh, you need a check? Yeah, I, yeah. I can write you a check. I'll pay the whole car <laughs> off right now. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't understand it, but it makes me. It does make you wonder. Like, is is Giphy being bought a sign of like the dot com era coming back to where you can like not ha- you you just have a plan for something, <laughs> right? You're not making any money, and you don't really like like no. The value of Giphy is not going to the website. So it's not like you have a strong advertising model there. And when you use Giphy, you don't want anything else being injected into wherever you're using it except for the image. So it's not like you can say like, oh, there's a strong advertising model here because now I get to see it. And even with that tracking pixel idea, I'm like, I still don't understand what the value of that would be. Okay, so what if I see the the ship it, uh, you know, GIF show up? Eight billion times on the coding block Slack. Like, what does it matter, right? right yeah. Like, I, no. I, I, I'm lost. Now their plan is this, right? You're going to say Giphy, and then you know, code review rejection or something, right? And you're going to get your funny thing, and then right below it, there's going to be a little Justin Timberlake thing that's played, right? Like, so that's what's going to happen. It's going to come along for the ride. Yeah, I, maybe I don't know, yeah, but then people are just going to stop using it, though. Right? Nah, nah. It just depends on how fast. No, I mean, or, if they uh, make it too invasive, I have an idea. Oh, well, two. Let's hear it because Giphy you might be able to sell it for four hundred million dollars. Yes, let's make Giphy two. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. It's like seven minute abs. <laughs> 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 yeah, and we'll spell it G I F Y. Yes. So that it'd be shorter. Yeah. Domain's probably <laughs> available. <laughs> Six minute abs. <laughs> that, that. All right. So for this episode survey, we ask, you know, cause I thought like, Hey, in light of the pandemic, right. And people working from home, if you ever guys ever noticed that like, uh, 
you like you, you go and a work from work from the office life versus work from home life that your work from home life you tend to like spend more time there's like less boundaries as to like when you stop working and start working you know what i mean so you end up putting in more hours so i thought okay now that more people are working from home because they're being forced to we ask how many hours per per week do you work on average so the choices are strictly 40 Work-life balance is a must or less than 40. I value my time or more than 40, but less than 60. Why do I do this to myself? And lastly, more than 60. Please help me. I have a problem. <laughs> These are anonymous surveys. Just so you know. <laughs> I mean, sadly, I, I've been in situations where, like, you know, we would definitely put in way over 40, uh, 60. I mean, it was like 80 wasn't even like a thing. You know, it's like, who got the most hours in this week? Yeah, it's a bad yeah. pattern. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean there would be times where you'd hit triple digits easily, and it was like, okay. That's, that's yeah. insanity. I'm too old for that. Yeah. No doubt. I, I wouldn't do that now. I wouldn't say, well, hold on. When I said, yeah, I didn't mean, yeah, like I'm too old for that. I meant like, yeah, I wouldn't do that anymore. But yeah, I mean, Joe, yeah, you definitely. Yeah, you look <laughs> I cool. entered a new decade, man. It's and let me tell you, nothing's been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's falling apart now, right? Oh uh, yeah, everything hurts. It's falling apart. Like okay, you I heard understand it gets every REM song suddenly. <laughs> Wait, you heard it gets better in the fifties? Why is that? It, I thought I, I thought forty was the dip, and then it's it's up. Yeah, I don't you're, know. You're over the hill, so that everything gets easier. Hmm, interesting. I don't think I'd it's all that. downhill from here. It's great. <laughs> As a bicyclist, I know what that means. <laughs> yeah, you better have some good brakes. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode of Coding Blocks is sponsored by Datadog, the unified monitoring platform for real-time observability and detailed insights into Docker performance. Enhance visibility into container orchestration with a live container view and easily detect clusters that are consuming excess resources using an auto-generated container map. Out-of-the-box, Datadog collects critical metrics from each Docker container so you can get immediate visibility into aggregated and disaggregated service-level traffic. So what are you waiting for? Try Datadog today by starting a free 14-day trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt after creating just one dashboard. Visit datadog.hq slash codingblocks to get started. Again, that's datadoghq.com slash codingblocks. All right. So uh, speaking about uh, the kinds of comments that you can uh, you can leave on a, on a code review, we already mentioned kind of be uh, kind and explain your reasoning. I think it's really important to to explain your reasoning. Otherwise, you you know, you could kind of sound like a jerk, <laughs> and you don't want that uh, because have, it just makes it harder to get through. I, pr- I probably am bad about this one because, like, a lot of times in code reviews, like I'll just ask like one or two things or like make one or two statements, and then I don't go into a long explanation of it. So that's that's probably my bad. Yeah, I mean, you you got to find out what works for you. But they did specifically mention. Um, questions kind of sounding accusatory sometimes. So like if you say like, why did you do something? It kind of puts the person in a defensive position where they feel like they need to defend themselves. But instead, if you just, you know, which maybe it's harder to even say like, this could be simpler if you 
blah, or this is in violation of statute 1113. Well, kind of the example that I was thinking of specifically to the questions though, is that like, if you, if you <clears throat> submit a pull request and you include commented out code in that pull request, it's a brand new pull request <laughs> with brand new commented out code. Then I'll ask like, Hey, did you mean to commit this? Like you know, was there, cause there might, you might have a legit reason. Like, yes, I meant to do it because, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm still iterating on it and tomorrow it's, it's not going to be commented out, but I needed, uh, you know, my boss needed me to go ahead and get what I had working already in there and I didn't want to lose it. So like maybe there's a reason. So, you know, I, I that's the type of questions that, that I was thinking of. You know, what's so funny about this. I I've definitely been guilty of the, why did you like, like I was almost personally offended by how something yeah. was done. You know, like, like you just, you could read that and be like, why did you, and you know, and, uh, and sometimes that's why you typed it that way too. Like yeah. the world were you thinking, right? Oh um, right. yeah. So yeah, definitely <laughs> be, be aware of how your words may be read. Yeah. Yeah. You, like, you know, whatever someone, it almost sounds like rhetorical. So if you're like, why did you name this, that you're like, oh, no matter what they, whatever, whatever I say, I'm going to get spanking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just remember that, you know what it sounds like when you question and, uh, you know, it doesn't mean don't ever say questions, but just, you know, realize that, uh, sometimes it can sound like, and there's obviously cases where it's fine, but, um, they also mentioned, uh, balance, giving out directions with pointing out problems. And so, um, there's a kind of, I think, a tendency with programmers to like kind of want to solve the problem, be like, look, type this like that, exactly this like that. But rather, they, they advise rather than saying how to fix the problem, just kind of demonstrate the problem and let the other person go back and fix it how they want to fix it. Because maybe they're closer to the code or maybe they have different ideas or maybe there's another reason there. So just highlight the problem without trying to come up with a solution. I like that because that's really part of the magic of being a developer, right? Is having that creative freedom to, to make things. And, you know, all three of us be given one thing and do it three different ways and it'll yep. all get it done. Yeah. And so there will only be one right thumb. way though. Right. There's no <laughs> right way. There's only I'll also be the right way. <laughs> yeah. Mine will be the more right way. Joe's will be the most is right way. Yeah. The most is yeah. right. Yeah. I'm the most, well, <laughs> uh, so they, they says that you should explain why things are important. Um, you know, but ultimately it's not your responsibility to fix the problem. You know, it's sufficient for you to just state the problem, but you want to be courteous about it because most frustrations, most problems, most bad things that come out of code reviews, most things that people are worried about with code reviews actually have very little to do with the technical. It's more about those interpersonal kind of emotions. Like, you don't want people to think you're dumb uh, when you're submitting a PR or you don't want to sound like a jerk if you're rejecting a PR. You know, these are all people problems. These aren't technical problems. So it's important that you think really hard about how you phrase things because that's the sticky part. That's kind of the – that's the rub. So I just thought it was really interesting. And one last point uh, they mentioned was really good is – um. If you have comments or if someone has to explain something to you in person or via email or in the PR system, then uh, that's probably good candidates for things that should be for information that should be in other places, uh, whether it's a ticketing system or it should be comments that are in the code or something searchable or that has history. Because usually once that pull request is merged in, like people don't see that again. So any comments, any discussion, anything that happens over email or in person is lost. 
like all that context disappears. So if you can codify that stuff into the code or into the ticketing system, then that's much better than leaving that stuff in the pull request system. Man, I completely agree with this one, by the way. Um, and, and we've mentioned that we use Atlassian products. Like we, we use Jira and I can't tell you how many times that a conversation might happen in email or might happen in these code reviews. And I will literally go put it back on there because it'll happen a month or two later. Somebody asked me a question. I'm like, I can just go search Jira and, and it'll pop up. Right. And that is so invaluable because like Joe said, you're not going to be able to go into Azure and, or like visual studio online and search for that stuff. It's not going to be as easy. And that's, it could be really valuable to have that in a place where anybody can go find it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I never, I mean, this is a great point. It never occurred to me and I'm definitely, I've, I'm definitely bad about it. I don't go back. I mean, I mean, my, well, first of all, I mean, not to brag, but my pull requests don't have a lot of comments on it. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but yeah. To, so you copy that stuff back out and put it in a Jira? Like, no. If there, if there are questions, if there are questions that arise in the PR that make it not clear, right? Then I will put that in the Jira ticket to be like, Hey, this is the stuff in here and this is what this does. Cause it wasn't clear enough or whatever. Right. I mean, I do love the the idea because, you know, definitely it's real easy to search the Git log, but to search the pull request, no. Right. Yes. Yeah, so maybe a way of saying that is like, you say, hey, this could be simpler if you did this or that. And the developer comes back and says, actually, this is very specific because the next ticket I have is going to make use of this. So it wasn't, you know, Yagni. This was like me getting ready for phase two. And so you could say, okay, well, you know, we've had this discussion that makes sense to me. Is this documented in the ticket? Did you say that you did that? Or is that something you could add, you know, uh, or document some other way? And maybe it's not worth it. You know, that was kind of a bad example there, but it's worth considering to say like, maybe this just should, you know, this kind of discussion, like this, this thing that I saw and had questions about is something that somebody else might have questions about. Like, let's make sure we have that somewhere else. Yeah. And by the way, for those that have never heard the term Yagni, it's Y-A-G-N-I. You ain't going to need it. It's, it's a very good one. And it's often true. It is. Yeah, unfortunately. Was that, I think that was a Fowler thing. Uh, it is. There's actually an article from Martin Fowler on it. It's pretty yeah. good one. Uh, yeah. Like, wow. Oh, like maybe he, did he didn't, he, maybe he didn't author it. He just blogged about it. Yeah. He's got a good blog on there. I got the link. We throw it up in here. No idea. I'll put it in the resources. You know what though? I bet there's a Wikipedia page for it. There is. There is. I was just reading it. <laughs> they also have see also and a list of other uh, funny terms. Dry, Mascal, Method, Munsing, Worse is Better, Solid. Some pretty fun ones. All right. So what what we got next on the docket here? Oh, yeah. This is just kind of a continuation of the, the, the – um, Kind of previous conversation, so uh, handling pushback and code reviews. So if the developer disagrees with you, bless you, if they Thank push you. back, then you should take a minute and consider if they're right. Because like we mentioned earlier, they are probably a lot closer to the code than you. They spent hours with that, wrestling with that. Maybe there's some some context there, some stuff that they don't know. And so if, if they do take the time to push back, then think about it. And if you think that your suggestions really do improve things, then don't give up on it. You know, don't, don't be afraid to go back to them and say, well, I think this does make it better. I hear what you're saying. I hear why, but 
you know, don't let that be a reason to roll over if your suggestions are still valid. And of course, everything needs to be polite because you don't want to end up in a <laughs> in an office grudge match. What if it is an office grudge match? Then what do you do? Well, then you take it to the court, <laughs> either the basketball court or uh, oh, I, Judge I thought you Joe. Meant people's court. <laughs> yeah, I am. Uh, so streaming Thursday nights, uh, Judge Joe. Judge Joe. I agree to mediate disagreements and pull requests <laughs> uh, for a minor fee of $100. Mock uh, trial with Judge Reinhold. That's right. That would be fun. <laughs> Please state your case. How do you plead? <laughs> uh, I plead correct. My code is correct. Yeah. <laughs> and Alan is wrong for saying otherwise. Yeah. Do you have any tests to back up? <laughs> Let's see the evidence. <laughs> hey, I like where you're going. See here. Uh, so people tend to, as we said, people tend to get more upset about the tone of the comments rather than the uh, insistence on quality. Because like, who doesn't want quality, right? So it's probably more that they feel like they're being picked on, or they feel like, uh, you know, someone's judging them harshly or not considering their needs or whatever. So- this this is where like having like when I mentioned earlier about the published, you know, Google has like a published standard, and you know not having a published standard can actually be problematic because then it's real easy for people to say like, if you have the published standard, then people can't say like, Oh no, you're picking on me because like, why would you do this? But, but if you have the published standard, then you're like, well, this is why we actually have this published reason why, but by not having that published standard, then it's real easy for the team in general to not be consistent about the process. And so then it's easy for somebody to feel like they're being picked on in the review because you're not consistent. Yep. You have objectivity. We talked about that a little bit with like uh, metrics, like um, code coverage or whatever. If something goes down, you can say like, Hey, code coverage is going down. We need this to go up. And that's something that the other person can't, you know, dispute like it either it is or it isn't. And it uh, also gives you some levity to say that without coming off like a meanie pants because you're just kind of, you know, pointing out the rules like you hope someone would do for you. Right. And we've mentioned uh, the longer you wait for cleanup, the less likely it is to happen because, you know, it's just harder to do it later. And it's easier to just say, well, it's not in production. It's working. It's fine. And, uh, oh, also they had a cool little paragraph there on uh, how changes take time and things are going to be rough. So don't expect to implement uh, pull request reviews if you've never done before and uh, everything to be gravy day one. Like it's going to it's going to be bumpy. There's going to be uh, a rough spot there. But I think uh, over time, like I, I don't know anyone that's really – gone through a case where they decided to back away from code reviews or gone away from them. I think like I've definitely heard horror stories of how, you know, reviews went bad or didn't go so great. But I think over time, those businesses always kind of work things out for the better. And they either were less stringent or they relaxed the rules or they made the rules tighter or, or whatever. They did something to make those pull requests better. I, I don't think I've ever heard of an organization that stopped doing code reviews once they started. Yeah, I think so too. And I will say for people that are nervous about it, I think we might have mentioned this, not not even when we were talking about this stuff, but back a long time ago when we first maybe did our Git episode, if you've if you've never been a part of a pull review, it's natural to be nervous about it, right? Like uh, or a pull request, like putting in your first one because you're going to feel like people are judging you. But just know that the entire process if done well, is a perfect opportunity for everybody to learn and be involved and improve the product. Right. And ultimately what you'll find out is they're not scary because you'll find out what people are caring about and what people are looking for 
And so your code habits will tend to steer that way and vice versa, right? As you're code reviewing other people's stuff, the same type thing will happen, right? You'll start molding the patterns and things that you want to see come into there. So it's really a give and take type thing that ends up being beneficial for everybody. Now, you know, in fairness, as we said, we were, we were wrapping up uh, this, uh, you know, the Google engineering practices and, you know, this was all from the point of view of the code reviewer. They actually have a set of documentation too from the author of the change list. Like, how can you, you know, write a your change list so that it, when it goes through the code review process, you know, all good things can happen. And just like in fairness, you know, high level of some of these things because a lot of this is already like we've kind of already described it from the point of view of the the reviewer side, but like. You know, one of the first things they talk about is just writing a good description in your your change list, which, you know, is where I had the epiphany of like, for example, of using like a pull request template and like the value that that could have. And so they go through talking about like, you know, what the, you know, the benefits of the good description could be. And like we said already, you know, if you if you call out like, hey, this is where the, you know, the body of what you need to go at, what you should look at first, right? And that way the reviewer can immediately focus on the meat of that problem. I mean, that, that makes sense. Right. But they also go on to talk about like <clears throat> calling out like, you know, functional changes versus refactoring, uh, changes, you know, like, you know, in your description. So, uh, you know, that makes sense. I think though, I would still prefer the refactorings to be done as a separate pull request. If I had, you know, if it, if it's possible, I think I would prefer to see that separately. Um, and just to also go in a little bit, because you mentioned the template earlier, and I don't know if everybody's familiar with what you're talking about. You're basically saying when you put in a pull request or a change list, usually there's just a big text box there that you can just start typing stuff in, right? But what you're saying is you should almost have defined sections of what you want people to fill out, right? Like, yes, here's the description. Give me the synopsis, right? Uh, give me the bullet points of what you expected to change in this thing. And then down below, it might be, did you include unit test check? Yes or no. Did you do this? Did you do that? Right. So having that template that people have to go in and, and basically fill out and check the boxes and fill in those blanks, having that thing set up ahead of time that everybody follows can ensure that everybody's getting an easier, you know, view into this pull request when they go look at it. Yeah. And in, in the next, uh, section that they have here specific to, you know, the authoring of the change list, they actually do call out that it's best to put the refactorings in their own, uh, you know, pull requests, like to keep that separate. But, um, you know, really they favor small changes over, you know, here's my thousand file, you know, pull request. Right. And it's for all the same reasons we've kind of already hit on in the past, you know, it's going to be, uh, reviewed more quickly. It's going to be reviewed more thoroughly, right? It's less likely to introduce bugs. Uh, you know, it's less wasted work if it's rejected. I never really considered that one before, but that makes a lot of sense, right? You know, if think about this from the point of view of the, of a code review, if you put in that thousand file change and somebody rejects it, you're going to fight, <laughs> you know, you're going to want to be like, no, 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 no. This needs to happen in here's all my reasons why, Right. And, and even if what you did was bad, right? Like you're still going to like, you're not going to be able to hear it for a while. Cause you've got some investment in that thing. Whereas if it was like a two line change and somebody's like, no, 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 you should never do that. Then you're not going to care. Right. Um, <clears throat> but 
you know, they, they also say that the smaller ones are easier to merge, which I don't know. I'm kind of like, we have the tools for that. I don't know that I care yeah. about that one. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, I would say though, it, it could be easier to deal with like fewer, uh, merge conflicts. <laughs> You're less likely to have merge conflicts. So maybe that's what they mean. Um, it, but they do say it's easier to design well. And, uh, you know, there's less blocking on the reviews because, you know, there's less to being reviewed and it's easier to roll it back on uh, the small change. So you definitely favor the small over the, the big ones, but they do list out reasons where like large change lists are, are, you know, they can't be helped. Right. Um, so, you know, like deleting an entire file, right? Like, you know, in, in that case, like if you were, if you were to consider your changes by like lines within a file, right. Then deleting the whole file, you know, you're whatever, you can't do that. And, and we've talked about like sometimes where like, uh, because of refactorings, you know, all the touch points that might happen elsewhere in the system require, you know, a bunch of files. And that's why it's so important to be able to call out like, Hey, this is where you need to, uh, focus your, your, your time from a reviewing point of view as to like what, what matters when you look at the, um, the pull request and, and, and some of these like, you know, it's crazy to even call for them to even call it out. Like don't break the build. Like that should be obvious. If I got to tell you, don't break the build, then there's other problems. <laughs> um, but yeah, they, they do call out another one though that is important. And, and this is kind of to your point, Joe, that you just said was that, you know, keep your, your, your test code should be in the same, same pull request. Right. So, you know, you asked for the proof, uh, judge Joe asked for the proof and, you know, if you have the test in there, then you can, then you have that proof there. Right. Um, so, and, and, you know, when, uh, I think it was Alan that was talking about like, or, you know, asking to make the, the pull request smaller and you're like, sometimes you just can't. Right. And, and so they acknowledge that like sometimes, sometimes you're just not going to be able to make it, make a smaller pull request. Like it, it is what it is and you're going to have to deal with it. Um, and then it goes back to, you know, don't break the build. And, and then lastly, you know, as it relates to the, like handling the pushback from the code reviews, right. You know, I mean, they start with, don't take it personally, right? Like it's, it's not meant to be personal, even though, Outlaw might have asked a dumb question like, hey, why did you commit this commented out code? Like, I don't mean it from a bad place. I'm just not good at communication. How's that? (laughs) (laughs) Right? Uh, You know, but but if there is like a legitimate, you know, thing that comes back, you know, a problem is, you know, then fix it. You know, don't don't take it personally. Just fix it. Uh, Right? So, Yeah. And, you know, worst case scenario, if it does, but if it does get to be the point where you are adamantly you know, defending your change and why it might need to get in and some reviewer is saying, no, it doesn't, you know, then, you know, rather than, rather than taking it personally and getting into a fight with them, like, then that's where you might need to like bring in a, a, a team leader, an architect or, you know, someone to like, um, you know, weigh in you know, uh, another party to weigh in on the, on what's happening here and like, you know, give their two cents. Right. Definitely. So, but yeah, so that's it. So we'll have a a bunch of links to uh, the Google engineering practices documentation. And I love that Google has this stuff available for us. You know, like you can see uh, 
see how they work and how they're thinking through it. So we'll have a bunch of links to that, um, as well as, uh, you know, Yagni, cause we all need to understand that. Um, you know, and, and more importantly, like how does get diff work? Because yep, that's, yep. that's probably the most important thing we've learned this evening. Um, awesome. <clears throat> and with that, we head into Alan's favorite portion of the show. It's the tip of the week. All right. So I just set up a pie hole. If you're not familiar with that, it's basically a, a Raspberry Pi that acts as a DNS server for your house. And it's got a gigantic, uh, multiple lists of, uh, of domains that it will block, basically send to a, a black hole at the DNS level. So your computer goes out and says, Hey, I need, you know, ads.google.com, whatever. And, uh, the, the, the pie hole basically says, nah, nothing. And so rather than your computer sitting there waiting for that request, it basically, you know, returns quickly. And so, uh, it makes things feel snappier. You block a ton of traffic. It's just really cool. And I was amazed at how easy it was. So if you were wanting to get started with like a Raspberry Pi and just kind of get one and you're like looking for a reason, this is a great reason. I mean, it's like seriously 20 minutes and it was just kind of cool. Um, I still have a lot to learn about networking. So I'm kind of using that as a chance to play around with, uh, my new Mac daddy router that I just bought. Um, so I got a link for that too. Uh, it's, a uh, uh, you guys familiar with Ubiquity? Yep. Yes. Ubiquity? Yeah. So it's kind of a cult. Uh, UBNT, you'll see a lot of people talking about it. Um, like uh, apparently once you get one, you want more and more and more and more. So, uh, I now have, uh, it's a 10 point, uh, 10 port router. Uh, even though it's the like edge router 12, um, so the numbers are all kind of mixed up. <laughs> But uh, anyway, it's just been really cool. So I'm like setting up sub networks and breaking all sorts of stuff. And then I just reset it and it's all good. It's been easy to set up, but it's been fun. So I now have a bunch of stuff wired. And now I want more Raspberry Pis. I've been thinking about setting up a Kubernetes cluster uh, because why not? And I'm sure check Kubernetes on a Raspberry Pi would run amazing. <laughs> yeah, the new ones are good. So uh, I bought um, I bought the Raspberry Pi with 4 gigs of RAM. And now they have them with 8 gigs of RAM. And, uh, like I'm using like 2% for my pie hole. It's ridiculous. You could use it like, uh, they, you could run it on a way old Raspberry Pi and be totally fine. But, uh, I'm running on kind of one of the nicer ones. Does anyone so else hate that name, by the way? Um, I'm okay with it now. Okay. With what name? Raspberry Pi? The pie really? hole. Really? No. The oh, pie, pie hole. hole. Oh, yeah. yeah no, I don't like pie hole. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. feels dirty. Uh, yeah. I just, could we call it something else? Nope. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm looking here at your links though. This thing looks pretty awesome. I'm not going to lie. I especially like, uh, you have in here, can, can I steal this? Can I announce yeah. this? Yeah. <laughs> Where I love how you like put it in the show notes as outlaws next pie cluster case. And of course I had to go click on that because like, how could I not? Right. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I would totally, I endorse, <laughs> I, I endorse this. I want to go to there. And I I need one of these in my life, and it yeah, is a cool. it is a uh, was it like a four a four how would you say it? a four stack four pies in this little bitty case that is a pie rack uh, yeah a small pie rack there you go better way to describe it that is like just a little bit better a little bit bigger than a hundred and twenty millimeter fan but in true outlaw fashion. The fan is RGB uh, LEDs, so yes, this is outlaw endorsed. I would, I would. This is the one I would get. 
Hey, so going back to this model number on it, right? So it's called the 12, and I think it's fair to call out that it's 10 ports that are, you know, RJ45 ports, but it's also got two SFP ports on it so that if you needed to hook it up to another router or switch or whatever, you got that fast transfer between it. So that's why you got the 12. So they weren't too wacky on the naming, you know. No, it's just confusing. Like if you get the four, it's got two usable ports. If you get that, it's like all of them are weird. And even like the, uh, the Edge Router 6 Pro has like the same number of ports, ports as the Edge Router 12. And so like the numbers that the, for the series have nothing to do with the ports, which is very confusing to me. Mm, got it. Now <laughs> the, the Edge Router that I'm, like more familiar with it, everybody likes is the edge router X. That's only the four ports. Yes. It's like I, four or five ports, something like that. <laughs> it's itty bitty. And it's yep. like 50 ish bucks. I mean, depending on like, I'm looking at it right now on Amazon and it's like 62. But if you watch the price, I mean, I've seen this one go down to like 40. I, I think I have one that I paid somewhere in like the 40, $50 range for it. And and the big deal on these things is they're managed switches right. more or less right like you can con- you can control at the different layers well uh, yeah because it's managed you could actually like on on this uh five port one that i'm talking about each one of those could be a separate network you could set up vlans within right. it and so uh you know you then plug five switches in well technically four because one of them would be the end uh to it but you know, so you would you would you would set up four different VLANs that you could then connect to four different routers and or switches, and whatever's on those switches couldn't see each other unless you like had specifically opened up uh, traffic to it. And so, if and you really so, want to like segment your network, you know, apart from one another, then you could. So, where this actually matters, that I think that listeners to this podcast would really get something out of this is. This whole IoT device thing around houses now where, you know, a lot of people just put them on the same network as all their other stuff. Well, almost by their very nature, the IoT devices just don't take security as seriously as your other things. And so like Steve Gibson from um, Security. Security Now podcast like he even recommended getting the edge router back a long time ago so that you put all your IOTs on one subnet and your other ones, you know, your computers and whatever else that you want to be able to share things on another one. And then that way they're technically in the same network area and they can all communicate with the things that they need to, but they can't talk to your computers, right? Like they can't get in there and do bad stuff because they're the weak entry into your network. So, so here's the problem that I have with it though, is that, um, Support everything he said. Everything he says, right? Sounds great. <laughs> the problem, though, is that uh, you know, if everything's wired, then yes, absolutely. But when you want to set up wireless, then it's like, okay, uh, well, depending on the size of your house, you know, w- you want to set up multiple mesh mesh networks in your house yeah. for this. Like, That's basically so. Then the ultimately. You know, for a for a a, ho- a a big house situation, then what you would probably want to do is go for a mesh networking system that allows you to have multiple uh, VLANs within it, or or you know SSDs that are broadcasted. But then, you know, I'm not really aware of any of them that'll let you set up, uh, you know, an infinite number. You know, usually right. they're like it's two, two, I guess. You know, you get you get one guest network and then yep. the primary network. So, 
yeah, I mean, I want to like put all that IOT stuff off. And that's the problem too, is that like a majority of that IOT equipment that you're talking about is going to be wireless, in which yep. case, you know, in order to really take advantage of the ubiquity uh, edge routers, you'd then have to have like multiple um, wireless routers or you know, mesh networks, wireless networks that are each connected to an individual VLAN on the edge router. Hey, so here's another question for you though, Joe, because the one you bought is not just this thing that would just do VLANs. It's also power over ethernet, right? So the POE, mm-hmm. are you going to buy you a bunch of wireless or security cameras and stuff to hook into it now? Cause you, you know, I thought about advantage. it. Um, so really the Pi, uh, just being able to plug the Pi in without a, another power cord was like part of what I wanted to try. I haven't actually done that yet, but, um, I was going to do that, but uh, I was looking at NAS too. So, uh, but it, I, I don't need the POE for anything uh, else right. that I know about. But I thought about buy it. some cameras. Time to buy yeah. some cameras. You got to use it, man. By the way, yeah. for those interested in the smaller version, it also supports POE. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, like just a four port router is like in that price range. Like you can probably get it for like you know twenty bucks on Amazon, but for fifty, you can get like the Mac Daddy four port. Yeah, yeah, that's managed on top of it. Like that's a big deal for that price. So the, yeah. I, I love your picks. <laughs> it is. I, I could talk about these all day. It is an extremely powerful uh, router, but you know, if you, it, it can also be a little overwhelming because, like, this thing doesn't come with like instructions. Like, you kind of have to know how to manage a network, or or be willing to go explore and learn and and do some searches to figure out like what, how to do what you want to do. Cause you know, it, it doesn't come with a manual. Other there is like a basic, in. yeah, it, do, it really doesn't come with a manual. You got like, I had to look it up on my phone while I was plugging stuff in. Yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but it was but, still uh, there like is 20 a minutes. Yeah. It, there was like a little wizard that kind of walks you up for basic settings and then you can just kind of go from there. So like, I mean, I break it all the time. I've already reset it like twice just because I did something Only weird. Twice? I couldn't figure out. <laughs> Only twice so far. So I'm doing pretty good. Hey, so we didn't actually ask. You did all this. You set up the pie hole. Do you like it? Like, is it? Oh, yeah. Is it okay. All right. Yeah, it's growing. My whole office is wired now. And um, before I had like the main wireless access point like in my office, and so I had uh, several devices that were all connecting uh, in wire over wireless. And I don't know, um, you know, call me crazy, but it just seemed kind of weird to have like all these wireless devices that were sitting next to you know my. Uh, my uh what you call it my uh router my cable modem but then also it just kind of made me think about like all the other devices that were kind of like flying in through my traffic like i was just imagining like all these you know wireless signals bouncing around in my office which i don't love but then uh, also anything else from the rest of the house is just kind of have to try to compete with those over wireless so i figured like i eliminate like half the traffic <laughs> the wireless traffic in my house just by going wired so my stuff's faster and so is everything else so why not very yeah. cool between that and the pie hole i'm very happy Excellent. Right, I was actually asking about the pie hole. You, you like that too? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Good. Yeah, because yeah, you're basically you're actually you're basically trying to get rid of like, uh, like like tracking type of requests. You know, like uh, ad tracking requests and all that. Like you're blocking that sort of thing, right? Yep. Yeah, I've been running an ad blocker for years just because I don't like the. And not so much that I don't like ads really, but just uh, I don't like all the traffic. I don't like all the stuff. I don't like all the, you know, I don't love the tracking either, but uh, I love just not even seeing it. And there's the only thing that I've even noticed as I've been running the pie hole is uh, sometimes I'll click on Google on the ads at the top. I'll search for something and it'll do the sponsored and it will try to route me through like Google's ad stuff in order to take me to the product. And that doesn't work because they're blocking it. I could turn that off, but uh, that's the only thing I've found so far that actually did it. And everything else I haven't even noticed. 
the lack of ads or, you know, it's, it's been totally transparent to me. It's just been awesome. It's just like blocking 15% of my traffic without me even knowing about it. Yeah. It's you block origin for your entire house, right? Like that's really, that's really what it is. Mm-hmm. Well, so. I was going to say, cause, uh, you know, to, to Alan's point, there's a plugin that I use and I guess Alan uses it too, since you just mentioned it, uh, for Chrome. Well, I think they have it for Firefox and for, um, uh, actually they do. They have it for Firefox, Edge, Opera, Safari, obviously Chrome, um, called uBlock Origin, which is basically like it, the idea, the principle is that like, if it's not coming from, if the request isn't coming from wherever you, uh, are trying to visit, then it's like a third party tracking pixel type of thing. And so like just block all those extra scripts and whatnot. And you know, you can just cut down a lot of, uh, the noise from web pages that you go to visit. And, um, you know, as a, as a side effect, you're, you're increasing the performance of the page. Uh, all, sometimes not all the time, depend very rarely. I'll, I will run into, uh, websites that, uh, just totally break because of something like that. But, um, but yeah, that's only, that's only going to be effective on the, pl- on the platforms where I can install this plugin. Whereas with the pie hole, it's just blocking everything on the network. And just yep. flat out denying like uh, a, a request if it sees a DNS request come through that it for a known uh, ad tracking or you know ad serving type of thing it can just be like nope yeah and so that's what at first I I just set up my DNS to, uh, on my computer just to try it out and that looked good so I set up for the whole house so I blocked all my devices that I use my Wi-Fi just like that I didn't have to go around a device I don't have to maintain them for all like if there's some problem with that, I could fix it at that level and it just applies to all of them so it's great. That's awesome. And sadly, it also, uh, as a benefit, makes your your computers and your network more secure because yeah, there does. there's a lot of uh, a lot of um, malware. Yeah, uh, I mean ads because the, because they're um, injected in. You know, there's not like a lot of human oversight into like reviewing it. Right, it's just like you know, trusting like, Oh, Hey, you want uh, 50,000 views. And so I'm just going to like insert your ad in, you know, there's a lot of bad ones that get added in, which used to be worse in the days of like the flash ads. Right. Oh, Punch yeah. the monkey. So yeah. yeah, you guys remember, golly, we're spending a lot of time on your tip, but that's fine. It was a fantastic one, but you guys remember the, uh, when Bitcoin mining was huge, there were ads coming out that had Bitcoin miners that were running scripts of the ads. On, on oh, people's yeah. computers, oh, that's so still a set on a website. It was actually using up your CPU. It's unreal. Oh, the good old days. Yeah, yes. that's still a thing though. But what was it? Um, dang it, uh, I can't remember. Okay, well, it, it'll come to me later. There, there, it it did die off, but there was still like a. It started with a C or something. I thought, but oh well. No. All right. So uh, my tip of the week was uh actually it may be like you know maybe how i'd like to like talk about some of these books coming up in the future maybe um google in their uh site reliability engineering section of google actually have some books available for free uh three o'reilly books uh, one of them is called Building Secure and Reliable Systems. The other one is the Site Reliability Workbook. And the other one is the Site Reliability Engineering. And these books are available for free. 
you can buy them if you wanted a specific, um, you know, platform version, you know, like a, a mobile version to carry with you. But otherwise, if you're f- comfortable reading it from a web page, then you can read these books for free. So uh, I'll have a link to that. And that comes courtesy of, oh, guess who? Mike RG from our Slack, uh, who shared that that uh, great find with us. Ne- never heard that name before. Never? Yeah, uh, never. You must be yeah. new to the podcast. How you doing? Right. Man, I could get back on Slack. It's been it's been a minute, been too busy of late. So I've got a handful, as always. The first one is actually one that came from Andrew Diamond, one of our good friends on Slack, and and he's always got good stuff up there. But he had actually sent this out a while back, and this is NVIDIA's RTX voice thing. And it's so cool. I only put a link to the actual way to set it up. And I believe you have to have an NVIDIA RTX graphics card for this to work, but essentially it will noise cancel just about anything. You can have a lawnmower in your room with you and you be talking into the microphone and your voice will come through almost crystal clear and you will not hear that thing in the background. There's some YouTube videos. Maybe I'll get a link or two in here, but there's a guy that actually has a blower, like a leaf blower, right next to his head and he's talking in the microphone and you can't hear that thing in the background. It is unbelievable. How do like, we know that, he turned it on? Say what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe you don't know, but you can actually tell a little bit of a difference in his voice when it does click on. But, but man, so, so impressive. This, this is where software is really cool, right? Like somebody wrote these algorithms to basically cancel out these things. So really neat stuff. Um, these next two are interesting. So I'd never heard of Scoop and I don't, and I searched on our website and I didn't see any mention of it. So, um, but I know Outlaw knows about this because I think he was talking about it earlier today. So Scoop, S C O O P dot S H. If you go there, it's almost like chocolatey, except it seems to be more geared towards command line type things. Uh, but if you go install this thing, like the next, tip that I've got here is called cube forward. So the three of us have been working a lot in Kubernetes type cluster worlds right now. And if you're running a Kubernetes cluster, let's say in Azure or in Google Kubernetes engine or AWS, right? AKS. There are times that you really want to be able to interact with the pods that are running in those cubes. So say for instance, you have, you know, Joe Zach wrote an awesome little, admin interface for Kafka. And there are times you want to be able to see what are the topics I have in my Kafka cluster? What are, you know, what are the schemas that are available in my schema registry, that kind of thing. And it's driven from a web UI. Well, that's exposed through a port. Well, if, if you are not directly connected to that Kubernetes cluster, you can't, you can't access that stuff. Right. So Cube Forward will allow you to spin up basically these tunnels to your computer so that you can go hit these web interfaces. So I can turn on Cube Forward service. It'll forward all those those pods ports to my local. And so I can just basically go to my local host or whatever the hosts that were named on the forward and I can hit these things. So fantastic tool. If if you are working with Kubernetes, highly recommended, especially if you're working with remote clusters in Kubernetes. But the cool part is 
we and I don't remember what went wrong today, but but one of our friends was trying to install the cube forward service, couldn't get it working, and everybody else was like, "Well, I just use Scoop," and and it was you to just go to your command line, and you type in Scoop install uh, K U B E F W D, and it did it. So, um, you know, again, very similar to Chocolatey, a very lightweight way to install things, and and on their page, which I link here. It's kind of interesting because a lot of times, like if you do chocolatey, it might ask for admin permissions to install something. They install everything in your, I think they said in your user path. So you don't get these admin permission pop-ups. Everything is allowed by default where it's putting it. So you bypass some of these security holes that, that come in by forcing other things to run as admin. So they've thought about a lot of cool stuff. So uh, I'm down with the scoop uh, recommendation. The the coup four you said that was a a great tool and I, I got asked like is it is it, it is so th- here's the thing uh, it is, is it? Joe you you want to fill it in because it looks like you, yeah you got so the I'll answer. probably say the same thing you're about to say so it's really great uh, in that it kind of masks some other things that you have to do by hand so it does some some cube uh for port forwarding which you would be doing you know depending on what you're doing in other word uh, other ways and to get your stuff in and it updates uh your host file for you so you can go to things. A little bit easier, which is really nice for things like databases and stuff where you can't put in like a cube proxy kind of URL. So it's been really nice for that. But the problem is, and I'm sure the reason Allah is frustrated is sometimes um, you make some changes to pods or services and then you cube forward kind of loses connection and loses its value. And so you end up having to restart it all the time. And it just, it uh, kind of falls down a lot more often than just manual port forwarding, which seems to just work all the time. And same with the proxy, right. it just seems to work all the time. But the proxy, if you do cube uh, proxy, it's similar, but it, you actually have to go through like a URL, which only really works for websites. And even then it's kind of dodgy. Yeah. So it, it can be frustrating. You have, it, it'll crash on you for no apparent reason too. And you'll have to kill it and restart it or whatever. So I, I like yeah. the premise of cube forward. And for all the reasons you just said, especially with like, you know, for things that aren't websites, then, you know, it works well for that. But like you said, though, uh, if there's any changes happening in, in your Kubernetes environment, like pods are being created ba- you know, based on demand or, or are being removed based on demand, like maybe I want too much from it because those situations, it doesn't handle well. Um, at least in my cases, I've noticed that there are times where you will see it trying, but you know, definitely not all the time. And, uh, it definitely, there seems to be some kind of like longevity to like what it'll, you know, how long it can run before it's just like, no, we're done here. Yeah. And you're like, no, how, how, why did you decide to just stop working? <laughs> now but- I'm still using this. But let's be honest, though. If you do the cube proxy and all that kind of stuff, you have way more commands to do yep. based off the pods you need to do. So this is truly it. like it's a one-liner. You basically say cube forward SVC, and it will forward everything. I get it. Now, there, there is one more downside to it. This is something to be aware of, and we saw it happen today. If if you haven't fully embraced Docker like the three of us have, then you probably have installed things like SQL Server that eat port 1433 and 1434 or Postgres that eats port 321 or, or 4321 or whatever. 5432. If, which one? 5432. 5432. 5432. I was close. It was, it was the, it was the backwards thing. So if you have those things installed, 
and you are trying to forward services that are in your Kubernetes cluster that are using those same ports, you're going to get conflicts and it'll break. Yeah. So you'll have to shut down those services locally before you can do it because you can't have conflicting ports, which is no different than anything else. But if you did the cube proxy on your own, you can basically tell it what port you want to use, right? So this thing's trying to make it easy for you. It's trying to let you go through it the easiest possible way, which has its ups and downs. But I would say on a whole, I'm happier with its ups that I'm annoyed with its downs. Yeah. I, I, I'm surprised you didn't go with the most, uh, you know, common example though, which of like a web server, like I oh, yeah, or something like that on port yeah. 80. Yeah. I mean, I, I hear you. Like I'm, I am definitely not trying to, to bash on, uh, cube forward, but you know, it, it, like I said, I, I'm probably just wanting too much from it. It, it is, it, if, if, you want just the easy route though. That's probably going to solve the 90%, right? So whatever that like rule that you want to follow, like 80, 20 or 90, 10, you know, this is probably going to get there. Just know that there are circumstances where like, if you need to have something, if you need to have, uh, you know, proxy traffic for like, you know, overnight or you know days or whatever, like at least my experience has been that it, it crashes, and you know, I can't, I can't rely on it for that type of longevity. Yeah. So I'd agree with that, but I think we both also use it daily. Like it's, it's valuable enough to where you're going to use it all the time, but there are definitely circumstances where it's not going to meet the call that you need. So, yeah. um, now here's this last one's not even a tip. This is an irritation. It actually really <laughs> made me mad today. Are, are we going to start a new, a new section to the podcast now? Like, I don't know. Do we need things to that irritate at a, a rants of the week? I don't well, that's care. a lot easier for me to come up with than tips, <laughs> man. I, you know what? What's irritating Alan? Dude, look, I'll be honest with you. Like, so I have this super love hate relationship with open source projects. And I and I mean that in the best and worst possible ways. So G- Google of all people, right? Like Google in their own paid for environment, there's a thing called data proc, right? And I will try and give this as short of a description as possible, but more or less Google data proc allows you to spin up Hadoop environments on the fly and additional components like Druid and Presto and a lot of big data tools, right? And what they do for you is these are not like services like uh, like their uh, data flow or anything like that towards some sort of managed service. This is more like infrastructure that they manage that you pay for the VM, the compute, but they've pre-configured everything for you, right? So anybody that's ever worked in a Hadoop environment or anything like that, there are so many configuration files and so many things you have to hook up to make everything talk to each other. It's sort of a pain. Dataproc takes that pain out. Well, man, I was so mad today. So they have this feature when you spin up these Dataproc clusters to where you could say, hey, install these standard components that Google will hook up for you. And they've got Druid, they've got Presto, they've got Anaconda, they've got they've got all these ones, right? And it's it's almost like the click of a button, like boom, here you go. When this thing spins up, it's running. So Presto is one of them, and I think we've talked about this in the past. Like Presto is an amazing technology that was created by Facebook to basically be able to query uh, disparate systems 
and then join that data together like it's in the database, right? Like it's crazy. Hey, I want to query Joe Zach's JSON logs on his server, but I also want to query my database and I'm going to join them on something. Like that's nuts that it can even happen. But here's where I absolutely almost came unhinged today. So their page for for setting up Presto, their entire page is like, yeah, this is PrestoDB. They even have links to PrestoDB.io, and it's telling you everything on the page. And it's like, hey, all you have to do is in the in the spin up, just say, hey, I want the component called Presto. Boom, you're done, right? So this thing doesn't come with all the plugins or the uh, yeah the plugins that I'm looking for because I want this thing to be able to talk to Druid. So I go to install, I, I manually put Druid on there, and it won't work. And I'm just, I'm pouring through logs. Like I'm going crazy, right? Like, man, I know I'm doing this right. And so I'm like, well, what version of Presto is running on here? And I go looking and it's not Presto DB. And I'm like, what kind of garbage is this, man? And I think I might've used some stronger language, but but the documentation page pointed to PrestoDB.io, right? That's the Facebook version. If you ever go looking into Presto, there's two things out there. There's PrestoDB, which is the Facebook one, and then there's PrestoSQL.io, which if you go to the web pages, they look eerily similar. If you click on the documentation, they look eerily similar. Basically, what happened is at some point, from my understanding, they somebody decided that Facebook wasn't moving fast enough with the request and branched it, right? And so there's Presto SQL, there's Presto DB. They're different paths. They're mostly the same product, but things have changed, right? I mean, to that end, they actually use the same logo. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I don't really even know how they get away with it, right? And, yeah. and here's the problem. If you ever search for Presto, you're having a problem, you actually have to pay attention to whether they're talking about Presto SQL or Presto DB because they are two different things and there's different configurations. So at any rate, to make a long story short, the documentation page for Google Data Proc in Google's own documentation says that they're installing Presto DB and they have links to Presto DB. I launch Dataproc, I go in and I do dash dash version, and the version looks eerily similar to Presto SQL. And I'm like, that can't be a coincidence. So then I go uh, less out the readme in the Presto folder, and sure enough, Presto SQL.io, go look at the thing. And I was like, I've spent a day trying to figure out why I couldn't get this configuration to work only to find out it's not that software. So you guys lied to me and this isn't even an open source project, right? This is the part that irritates the heck out of me is the whole time I've had this cluster running, I'm spending money on it. Right? So it's like, I've gone down the entire wrong path because at some point somebody's like, oh, well, I think Presto SQL might make more sense than Presto DB. So we're going to change what Dataproc's doing behind the scenes, but we're not going to change the documentation. Dude, I have fought so much of that kind of garbage in this open source world that it I've lost more hair. And I didn't even know that was possible, right? <laughs> like it, it's it's driving me crazy. So that's that's my little nit. That's my my rant for this particular episode. Maybe we will have something, but I don't want it to turn into a negative show. But for the love of God, man, if people are paying for a product, especially like I'll give you a pass if it's completely free and open source. But if somebody's paying you to use it, man, 
that's a lot of time wasted. Not only was it money we spent on the data product cluster, but it was also time of mine spent that the company's paying for me to be productive. It, you know, it, 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 I don't know that that kind of stuff just drives me absolutely crazy. And sure. I know that, that it's hard to keep everything up to date, but man, I, I did send feedback on the page on the documentation <laughs> yeah. page where that was, I, nice. I clicked a little thing at the bottom and I was like, this is wrong. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, And I don't think I left a, I don't think I did what we said in this and be courteous and all that. I was like, this is, this is misleading. This is wrong. Did, it's did, all trash. Did you do yeah. what I do though? And sign it, Joe Zach. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think I signed it, Michael Outlaw. Oh, I don't, I don't yeah, right. So, that See, I, I had a missed call from Google earlier. I was wondering what that was about. Oh man, so for, I see. I'm hot at thinking about it right now. I, all right, I'm coming to back off that. So, <laughs> all, all right. right. Well, uh, we are done with the uh, what's bothering Alan today <laughs> portion of the show. Uh, so. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this uh, review of the Google engineering practices. Uh, if you happen to uh, hear about us from a friend, maybe a friend, uh, you know, let you borrow their device to listen or, you know, gave you a link to it, uh, you know, subscribe to us on iTunes or Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite place to listen to podcasts are. I'm sure you can find us there. And if you don't find us there, let us know and we will correct that. And uh, as Joe said earlier, uh, be sure to leave us a review. You can find some helpful links at www.codingblocks.net slash review. And remember, what was it? 17, I think, that we needed? 17, 17. was the magic number. We yeah. definitely want to hear Joe Zach in his beautiful singing voice. Of course, it's going to be a beautiful singing voice. We need the 17 reviews to make that happen. Yeah, was it That's 17 the- or 70? It was one no, seven. Roll the tape. It was a teen. It was a teen yeah. for sure. Seventeen. <laughs> All right, it was seventeen, I guess. <laughs> hey, 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 man! I'm completely going off script here. Joe, you said you were looking at doing a NAS. Yes, I am looking at doing a NAS. I NAS think maybe we should have like this little thing. Maybe we do a YouTube series to where you pick yours, I pick mine. And then we put them together, and then we compare and contrast what we like. You pick first. <laughs> I, that's <laughs> I'm not that's hardware, man. Hardware is not my specialty. Dude, I, I've read so much about this. All right, so at any rate, that would be fun, I think. Um, anyways, so, yeah. Uh, while you're up there at CodyBlocks.net, check out our show notes, our examples, discussions, and more. And send your feedback, question, rants, and reviews to uh, Slack, I guess. Uh, okay, I'm, I don't know. I'm tired, I guess. I don't know. Uh, make sure to follow us on Twitter at CodingBlocks or head over to CodingBlocks.net. You can find all our social links at the top of the page.